This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thanks for being with us for your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. This week, we're tracing the rise and fall of Kirby Hall in Northamptonshire in the East Midlands and the new project to share its story with visitors. Kirby Hall is one of England's greatest Elizabethan and 17th century houses that once hosted royalty. Today, it's partly roofless, although some areas, such as the Great Hall, remain intact. And it's getting ready to welcome new visitors, keen to discover what life would have been like for its former owners, servants and guests. Joining us to talk about its history and the plans to bring its story to life are my three guests for today. Hi, I'm Megan Nayland. I'm a senior properties historian here at English Heritage. I'm Nadine Langford and I'm the interpretation manager for the project at Kirby. I work with the historians, curators and designers to bring the stories to life. Hi, I'm Dickon Whitewood. I'm the curator of collections interiors for the East region. I am responsible for the interiors and the collections, most of which is stored at Rest Park Collection Store. Megan, so if we can start with you, for people who aren't familiar with Kirby Hall, can you describe this vast mansion and the gardens that visitors can see today? Kirby is a really impressive and really fascinating site. It's a big Elizabethan mansion based on a courtyard plan. And as you sort of already suggested, part of it is roofed and part of it is ruined. So those ruined areas have lovely spaces open to the sky where you can see the hints of lost floors and fireplaces hanging sort of on the second level of the house and then stripped back interiors. And accompanying it is a really beautiful, impressively restored garden, once said to have been the finest garden in England, which has been restored based on um, archaeological evidence in the in the 1990s. So it's a really special place where you get a bit of inside and a bit of outside, a bit of ruined and a bit of roofed. It's got a little bit of something for everyone. Yes, it's a really impressive site, especially from the air. Who built it then? And what do we know about them? Kirby Hall was built by the Northamptonshire local Sir Humphrey Stafford, who had inherited Kirby from his father. And we don't know an enormous amount about him, but the house he created, I think, says quite a lot. It really is a statement of his ambition, taste and wealth. What we do know is that he was made Sheriff of Northamptonshire in 1566. This was a position where sort of the final appointment was given by the Crown, so Queen Elizabeth I at the time, and was responsible for things such as law enforcement and financial duties within the county. So he was of some local importance. And in the area around him, lots of people were starting to build. And actually, some of his neighbours had hosted the Queen on her visit to the area in 1566. So perhaps he had some ambitions to host royalty, or perhaps he just wanted a home a bit better suited to his local status. And to build this house, he employed the local master mason, Thomas Thorpe. And though quite traditional in layout and planning in some of the masonry, it included some really innovative new ideas for the time which came over from Europe. So in terms of Stafford, his house says so much about him and that's what makes it really interesting. And he died in 1575, so that's about five years after construction of Kirby began. And it seems the house was probably in a really advanced stage of construction, if not entirely finished by that time. Just before we move on to the next owner, I think it's worth stating, isn't it, that Queen Elizabeth I never did visit the hall itself. 
No, so Stafford never received a visit from Elizabeth. And as you'll hear, the later owner who purchased it afterwards didn't either. So even though it may have been built with some aspirations in mind of a royal visit from Elizabeth, she never came. Okay, well, let's move on to the next person who owned the hall after Stafford, which was Sir Christopher Hatton. Can you tell us a bit more about him and why he came to Kirby? Well, here is where we bring Elizabeth into the story in quite a strong way, even if she didn't quite make it to Kirby. So Sir Christopher Hatton purchased Kirby Hall not long after Stafford's death, and he was a courtier and favourite of Queen Elizabeth I. And Kirby was in his ancestral county. He was born not far away in Holdenby, and perhaps he saw an opportunity to create a house like Stafford had, suited to his rank, in the county of his birth, and he was also an MP there through some of his life. Christopher Hatton's a really interesting figure in Elizabethan society. He really had a meteoric rise through the ranks. And tradition has it, it started, all started with catching the eye of the Queen, supposedly while dancing. And, you know, one of Camden, the contemporary historian, sort of wrote of him as young and of comely tallness of body and admiral countenance, and he had a modest sweetness of condition. And from his relatively sort of lesser gentry beginnings, he was gifted positions by the Queen. He became a gentleman pensioner, so part of the Queen's ceremonial bodyguard, a member of the Privy Council, and ultimately became one of the, if not the most important statesman in the country when made Lord Chancellor in 1587. This was essentially the most senior judge in England. But he also had a very special relationship with the Queen. He became a close and trusted advisor and an important and active spokesman for her in Parliament. And he sort of engaged in this game of courtly love, which the Queen somewhat enjoyed. He was one of the favourites. So I know, I think you've done some um, a podcast on Robert Dudley at Kenilworth, I think, before. Yes. And so if we think of royal favourites, probably actually Dudley's one of the ones which comes to mind often. And he was also building at the time. So Hatton, we can sort of think of him among these people and he exchanged loving letters and gifts with the Queen. He had the nickname of Lids. Dudley was the eyes, he was the lids. And, you know, he writes these lovely letters about not seeing her for a while. He hasn't seen the brightness of the sun that giveth light unto my sense and soul. And he was also the ever dutiful perpetual suitor. And the Queen, as he put it, was his holy saint and his homes, Holdenby and Kirby in Northamptonshire, shrines to her, that holy saint. So I'm getting the sense, obviously, of this other favourite in the Elizabethan court and the fact that if you want to impress Her Majesty, then you will build and you will show your great skill and architecture and artistic side and all this sort of thing. So did Hatton actually make any changes to Kirby Hall? Yeah, so when he purchased it, he seems to have completed any work that Stafford had left over before he died, and he added the staterooms. So these are a series of spaces based on those of a royal palace, and which basically Hatton could host high-ranking guests with all the ceremony and ritual that they would expect, and, you know, the most high-ranking of which being royalty. In reality, though he built these rooms, it seems quite likely that he probably didn't spend a huge amount of time there. And as we've already heard, Queen Elizabeth never came. He would have been at court a lot of the time abroad and perhaps at his ancestral home, Holdenby, just up the way, which actually not only was he adding the staterooms to Kirby, around the same time he was rebuilding his other home, Holdenby, which was just huge, probably about twice the size of Kirby as well. So he really did like to build. 
and it cost a lot of money. By the time he died in 1591, he was in enormous debt. And, you know, he wasn't the only courtier who would have splashed out on their architecture. There's um, a wonderful letter between William Cecil, Lord Burley, so sometimes Secretary of State, to the Queen, to Sir Christopher Hatton in 1579, where he writes, God send us both long to enjoy her, for we have both meant to exceed our purses in these. So they were expending (laughs) a lot of money to impress. But when you've been given all these titles and responsibilities and potentially Her Majesty might come during her progresses, then you need to be prepared, I suppose, with a beautiful reception and a beautiful palatial, quasi-palatial place to entertain Her Majesty. It has to be worthy, mustn't it? Exactly. You've got to have all the spaces expected. And, you know, not only were you spending extraordinary amounts of money on creating those, but on a visit as well. You can only imagine the extraordinary expense which would have gone into the actual entertaining from the food to the entertainments and and everything else that came with that. Yes. It's kind of like a massive insurance policy, isn't it? In a way. I hear what you're saying. You don't want her to turn up and there'd be nothing there. Yes. (laughs) Not an appropriate (laughs) bedchamber. Exactly. And we know that Elizabeth I didn't visit, but I'm pretty right in saying that there was a royal visitor and visitors later on after the death of Queen Elizabeth I. Absolutely. So Queen Elizabeth died in 1603 and James VI of Scotland was crowned James I of England. And like Queen Elizabeth I before him, he went on progresses of England. These were opportunities to see a subject, to confer honours and, as we've heard, considerable expense upon them and, you know, basically to be seen. And during these progresses, he would stay at the homes of the aristocracy and enjoyed pastimes, as we've heard, such as feasting, but particularly for James I, hunting and hawking. He loved hunting. And Kirby was actually situated in the royal forest of Rockingham. So where better to go and stay to go hunting? And in fact, Queen Anne stayed at Kirby in 1605. And then James I is known to have stayed at Kirby nine times between 1608 and 1624. Now that's a lot of visits to one house. Mm. And so at long last, the staterooms would have been put to good use for entertaining and accommodating royalty. And was Sir Christopher Hatton the uh, person to welcome James I at this time? Well, that's a bit of a trick question. It wasn't the Christopher Hatton we've just heard about. No, it wasn't the Lord Chancellor. Kirby has a great history of family members using the same name. We've got a lot of Christophers, we've got a lot of Georges, a lot of Elizabeths. And the people to actually welcome James I to Kirby would have been the second Christopher Hatton to have owned the house and the third Christopher Hatton to have owned the house. So we tend to call them Christopher Hatton 1, 2, 3 and (laughs) 4. Okay. What do we know about what life was like for the Hattons when they were entertaining or not entertaining during this period, uh, during James's reign? Life at Kirby must have been full of highs and busy moments as the royals came and sort of quieter moments where sort of domestic life and interests were played out. And during a royal visit, there would have been great ceremony. And I think Dickens going to talk a bit later. The rooms would have been quite different to how they would have appeared today. Lavishly decorated. You might have dined in state in the great chamber. And then you may have played some billiards in the withdrawing chamber. So some nice courtly entertainments. But what's really interesting about this sort of 17th century period after the first Christopher Hatton 
is we have a lot more evidence of what life was like sort of more generally for the family there. And something I always quite like to do is to look in the letters of the women who lived there. They tended to spend a lot more time at these houses while their husbands were perhaps away on business. And two of the Hattoners were governors of Guernsey, so they were there quite a lot. They might have been in London during periods or at court. And you get little hints of family life, of bringing up children, of managing servants and looking after accounts and One of my favourite characters, I think, is the formidable Frances Hatton, who was one of the ladies of the house in the later 17th century. So she was married to the fourth Sir Christopher Hatton there. And during the 1670s, she oversees a whole series of alterations to the house. And she diligently writes about chimney pieces and panelling being put up in the rooms and of managing the labourers and servants and garden alterations. So you get a real mix of things across the 17th century going on. You get another Hatton who's very interested in collecting and was a great antiquarian and gathered an incredible collection of ancient manuscripts at Kirby and brought an intellectual circle there. So, and, you know, in our new exhibition that's going in, we're really exploring all these different things that went on under this roof, whether it's entertaining royals, whether it's copying manuscripts or updating the architecture and all the people who lived there, whether it's the Christopher Hatton, whichever one that might be, or the wife or the servants um, who helped run that household. Yes, well, that leads me on to talk to our interpretation manager, Nadine Langford. So, Nadine, Megan sort of walked us into what you're sort of responsible for now regarding these changes that have taken place at Kirby Hall. And we are just weeks away from Kirby being reopened. So can you tell us what English Heritage has been working on for 2021? Well, we've been working really, really hard together to create a new exhibition and a graphic scheme throughout the house. And But in addition to that, there are some really dramatic and playful kind of add-ons that we're really excited about. And we really hope that the, it will draw the visitors into the story of Kirby. And Kirby has such a distinctive atmosphere and we really, really wanted to work with that and reflect it in the design. And so we're going to evoke something of Kirby's heyday that Megan's been describing, but also reflect something of its kind of faded and dramatic beauty as well. You've been planning it for a while. That's right, a long time. I think discussions began in 2017 about doing a project at Kirby, and obviously COVID has sort of put a pause on that to some degree. But um, I think it's important to say as well that projects like this take years and years of planning and research and design work to get right, and every element is really, really thought about and worked through. So even without something like COVID in the way, projects like this do take a really long time to plan. I can appreciate. What kind of elements, as you mentioned, will we see as we walk around the site as visitors? When you arrive at Kirby, both the spaces in the courtyard and, and outside in the gardens and inside the house have uh, new stories to tell and are going to be brought to life in a series of panels which will tell you the story of, of the space but also feature images of Kirby in the past and also feature images and engravings and paintings of some of the owners of Kirby and characters associated with it. So you'll kind of put a face to the place in a way and be able to see the people that were there As uh, Megan's mentioned, there's a great new exhibition which will really kind of flesh out some of these stories and really interesting characters such as James Chappell, who was one of the servants at Kirby who had a role in saving one of the Hatton's lives. And we really sort of were excited to tell that story. As well in the spaces, there are a series of hangings which will lead you through the staterooms, which Megan's described. And you can progress, as you may have done, through the staterooms and ends with a big kind of theatrical moment, which we're excited to share. Okay, 
sounds very tantalising. I also understand that there's a bed being installed somewhere. Can you tell us a bit about that? Obviously, Kirby is a historic property and that comes with lots of quirks and there's no way that we could put a bed made of real fabrics inside Kirby. So we wanted to think of a way of sharing the story of this luxurious bed in a way that we could um, let visitors be involved in it and look at it but not use real fabric. So we had to think of a kind of creative way to do this and we decided to think about all the amazing optical effects you can achieve with paint and that led us to thinking about working with theatre designers to realise a vision of this bed that's mentioned in the inventory that would give visitors a chance to kind of understand what a huge statement it was. So just so I'm clear, it's a reconstruction of a bed, but is it an actual bed sitting in the space? And is it in a roofless space or is it in a a roofed space? It's in a roof space. So it's in the best bed chamber, which is the bed chamber in the, the roofed part of the house. So it's not really a reconstruction bed. It's not a reconstruction bed at all. It's a kind of theatrical interpretive structure, but it looks like a bed and you can climb into it as if like a bed okay i suppose it's a like a theatrical prop that's also interpretive in that it tells you the story of what the bed listed in the inventory was made from so you can sit on it and you can climb inside it but it's a it's a prop and it, but it's painted to look sort of real and be a bit of an optical illusion very interesting so what period do these displays reflect exactly will we describe it as the jamesian period <laughs> The bed and and other interpretive aspects draw on the detailed inventory of 1619. So it's a snapshot of this kind of the heyday of of Kirby in some ways. But there are other aspects of Kirby's history that are reflected in some of the images that we can show of the restoration of the building and things. I gather there's an audio guide that visitors can listen to as they walk around. Yeah, that's right. We have a new audio guide with lots um, about the house, but also about the garden and its design, which is really fascinating. And it's included in your entry to the site. And so there's a kind of a whole new rich seam of content that visitors can explore once they get to Kirby. So do you pick up one of those devices when you've arrived and sort of walk around That's it? right. OK. Yeah, that's right. And how will this, all these changes help bring the projects to bring Kirby's story to life for family visitors as well? We're really excited to welcome families to Kirby and, and I think that you know, especially now it's a really great time to visit with families and we've employed the help of Edmund the Peacock who, um, if anyone knows Kirby, knows that there's a kind of a set of peacocks who ruled, literally ruled the roost and so we have a new paper trail for families and they can pick one up free from the ticket office and they can walk with Edmund through the courtyard and gardens and it includes some interesting facts about Kirby and little activities and challenges for families to do together. And there are also, in the house, there are also kind of moments of play that we're inviting, not to disinclude the bed as well. So that's all the family stuff kind of covered. But for the sort of architectural nerds like me, uh, let's bring in Dickon Whitewood, who's the curator of collections and interiors for the East region. Dickon, anyone visiting Kirby Hall today will find that the roofed areas of Kirby Hall are largely empty, of course, and the interiors have been stripped back. Can you tell us why that is? Yeah, of course. Well, the house ceased to be lived in by the Finch Hatton family, who were descendants of the Hattons that Meghan talked about in 1823, after which the contents of the house were put up for sale. And this already followed an earlier sale in 1772, which had already removed much of the earlier contents of the house. Then there was about a 100 years of neglect and decay 
after which the Ministry of Works took over the house in 1930. And they immediately started a programme of repair works, which lasted until 1966, which was, of course, only interrupted by World War II. Mm. And the emphasis of this project was on conservation and repair and built on the experience that the Ministry of Works had already had working on similar projects with castles and monastic buildings, although this was the first country house that they'd taken on, so it's a brand new to them. And they consolidated the roof and the external shell of the building and fixed many of the structural issues. But this sort of sympathetic approach to the exterior of the building was not always followed in the interior. And instead, the prevailing idea was to return the building to a supposed original Elizabethan state, which of course was always going to be difficult. But all of the features and finishes dating from after the 16th and 17th century were often removed, whereas the fittings that were deemed as being suitable for the Hatton period or the, and the Elizabethan period were kept. So in places, this archaeological approach to building repair actually resulted in mass in great losses, mm. um, which today we obviously will regret quite a lot because um, it removed so much. And nowhere was, is this more evident than in the Great Hall, where a lot of the later panelling was stripped away, and in the Great Chamber, where an entire coved ceiling was removed because it was not Elizabethan and therefore not valued as highly. And what is left today is therefore largely a shell, which of course has led to many differing ideas of how to present Kirby. On the one hand, there are those who in the past have wanted to redecorate, and reinstall furniture and there are others who have wanted to keep it stripped back to demonstrate the architectural history of the building. I think our project is somewhere in between where of course we are not planning to completely redecorate any of the spaces but we are bringing back some of the installations. We are rather featuring installations which will give visitors a flavour of Kirby as it was in its heyday. Let's get back to then its heyday and how it would have looked like in the Hatton period. Can you tell us what the Great Hall, for example, that key feature would have looked like? Well, of course, that's a really difficult question to answer because the house was lived in for over 200 years and it did change dramatically during that time as fashions changed. And as Megan said, different people lived in the house. In the Great Hall, it's now largely empty But we are lucky that we do have a 1619 inventory kept in the Northamptonshire archive, which dates to almost exactly the same time as James was visiting. Of course, that paints a very different picture than the current stripped-backed interior. The Great Hall itself, it mentions the walls were lined with wainscot about the hall with seats, which tells us that the walls were once lined with wood much like the other houses of the period, such as Audley End, which has a a similar great hall but is decorated. We also know that there were paintings, a grand tapestry telling the story of Hercules, arms and armour displayed on the walls, a chandelier, and of course, in a dining hall, you would, or great hall, you would have tables that could be used for many purposes, but of course dining for larger occasions. It sounds impressive, just the way you're describing it. I suppose when you walk into that location in a few weeks or during the summer, you're going to have to sort of close your eyes and have those descriptions read to you in a way so that you can really imagine how lavish it would have been during that heyday. 
Yes, and although the Great Hall was impressive, some of the most lavish and expensive interiors were, of course, in those departments which were set aside or designed for the king or queen's own use. And these were the the great chamber, the withdrawing chamber, the best bed chamber, in which the king or queen would receive guests, entertain themselves and sleep in. And similarly, from the 69 Infantry, we know that they were decorated with tapestries, paintings, they had chairs and furniture, carpets on the floor. Nadine mentioned before about the best bedchamber, where we know and we've based the design of our interpretive piece from the description, which says that it, the state bed was made of a, up of a gilt bedstead with four great gold balls on the corners and red taffeta curtains with a set of sort of throne-like seats and stools in front, again covered with red taffeta, suggesting that a lot of thought was put into the design and style of the space. Yeah, it sounds beautiful. Yeah. It sounds fantastic. So we talked about all the sort of the soft furnishings and uh, and furniture that would have potentially been in the space during its heyday in that sort of 1619 type period. But um, for the outside and the architecture, can you talk a bit more about that and what its key features are? Kirby is famous principally, I think, for its Elizabethan architecture, and it is one of the earliest and best preserved examples of its period, which shows the introduction of classical architecture into England. And nowhere at Kirby Hall is this better demonstrated than in the courtyard. When you first walk into the courtyard space, you're struck by the scale and proportion of it, which of course, as it was intended to do, it's intended to be impressive. But as you look closer, you begin to notice details which are clearly inspired by the architecture of ancient Greece and Rome. As you enter the the courtyard, you pass through a loggia or a cloister, which was a covered walkway above which ran a long gallery. And the cloister runs the whole length of the entrance front. And as the two names I've I've said, Lodger and Cloister, suggest, there is an element of similarity with the cloisters and medieval monasteries. But by the Elizabethan period, they were drawing influence as well from grand public buildings in in the ancient world, thinking of forums and temples with grand covered porticos and so on. Other classical details include pilasters in the courtyard. And pilaster is a name for a decorative column applied to a wall, but not structurally integral. And the Ionic, so that's obviously a Greek form of architecture. Between these columns, there's a frieze. And it's certainly not an accident that inspiration was taken from Greece and Rome, because we know that the architect Thomas Thorpe used a pattern book, which was a book of architectural design, which had been published recently by a man named John Shute. And there's elements at Kirby which are directly copied from this architectural book. And it it really does show how the builder and the architect were really at the forefront of new architectural thinking. Has there been any archaeological or conservation work on site that has helped build our understanding of Kirby Hall and helped in the display elements that people will see? There has been a lot, yes, both in the interior and the exterior. Probably the most recent and important in the interior of the house was in 2001-4, English Heritage was engaged in a project that was designed to reassess the significance of the hall's later decorative features, still present on the site and in English Heritage collections that had been taken away by the Ministry of Works. 
and it was a research-based project and paint analysis was undertaken and assessments were made of the fabric of each room including um, stripped out elements such as doors and panelling. Combining this with evidence from old photographs and historic plans, the organisation was able to confirm the original location of many of these lost features and build up a greater understanding of the historical development of each of the rooms. And in some cases, in select cases, it actually led to the redecoration of rooms. Probably the most important one was the billiard room where traces of original wallpaper and flecks of paint were significant enough to enable a full wallpaper design to be replicated featuring green fleur de lis on a blue background, which now line the walls. So visitors can still see that. On the exterior, obviously, the, the exterior of the building in the gardens have also been the subject of a lot of work, a lot of excavation work and reconstruction work. Probably the most significant was between 1987 and 1994, when the gardens were excavated by Brian Dix, the archaeologist, who revealed a wealth of information on the nature of the garden and indeed earlier periods of Kirby's history, including the medieval church and medieval graveyard, which was demolished in order to make way for the new gardens at Kirby oh, wow. Hall. Gosh, yeah. so, so when you're walking around those sort of reproduced Elizabethan gardens now, then potentially you're walking over graves from the medieval period. Not now, because once the excavations took place, they were removed. Oh, I um, see. But that certainly would have been the case for the inhabitants of Kirby Hall, the Hatton inhabitants. Yes, because the church was demolished but it stood in the place of where the Garden Mound can be seen today. And the Garden Mound was intended for Hatton and the guests at Kirby Hall to walk up the mound and then be able to survey these wonderful gardens from a position of height. And perhaps they didn't know that actually they were stood on top of the medieval church and some of the human remains of the people who had once lived at Kirby in the medieval <laughs> period. Yes. So lastly then, Dickon, what work has gone into ensuring that these new displays are authentic and historically accurate? Well, as Nadine says, these projects take a long time, but that does give us the opportunity to conduct research and look at existing research, which often can be quite voluminous, to really make sure that everything we present to visitors is historically accurate. And that, of course, has lots of different elements. In the exhibition, we make sure that all the text is sourced correctly and is factually accurate as we can make it. And there has been new research that Megan has done for this project and, and others have done for this project. In terms of the interpretation installations that we've talked about as well, and Nadine has mentioned, we're lucky that Although Kirby Hall itself has lost most of its original furniture and fittings, there are many surviving collections in contemporary country houses and also museum collections that we can draw from, take influence from and actually use in some cases and replicate in our own interpretations. So, for example, at Kirby, we know from the 1619 infantry that there were tapestries abundant throughout the house. And one particular set featured the 12 labours of Hercules. And in many cases, whole sets of tapestries don't survive. But through our own research, we managed to find a set in the Kunsthistorische Museum in Vienna. There's a complete set of tapestries that we've been able to use and 
through interpretation, sort of install back into the spaces where we know they once existed, which just gives a flavour of these spaces and how they would have looked. Yes, and I think that's really important for people who are walking around these partly roofed, partly roofless sites, that you do need to have it presented to you to spark your imagination and give you a few clues, because otherwise it can be a little bit difficult walking around some of these spaces to try and imagine what it would have been like if you don't have those helpful hints from English heritage historians. Um, Speaking of historians and our senior properties historian, Dr Megan Leyland, who spoke at the start. Megan, let's bring you back in. Can you tell us what you think of all these changes that have been taking place at Kirby and all the work that's gone into it? Are you quite impressed with the project and how it's panned out? Yeah, it's been really really exciting and really fun to work on and we've done some things perhaps differently to how we've ever done them so working with theatre set designers to reconstruct a version of this incredible bed is something that I've never done before and I think it's a really exciting new approach for us you know as we've heard and as Dickens has been saying Kirby's had such changing fortunes over a long period of time and has such a layered history and such a range of stories that we can tell and which this project is really enabling us to do in exciting ways from its glamorous heyday to its 18th century elegance to its romantic ruination and we really hope to take visitors on that journey and as you say to give them those hints to inspire their imagination to really begin to tread in the step footsteps of James I through those staterooms you know the interiors are, are not really there in the same way before but the progress as you progress through them still is to sort of admire that room in order to hear we've got some sounds being put in the spaces the little hints of ghostly footsteps Hmm. um going on that ceremonial route through the rooms so i'm really 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 excited to share what we've done with with visitors and is the story of how it fell into decline and ruin also being told Dickens obviously mentioned that there was about a hundred years or so of decline and then obviously the ministry of works picked it up Yeah, we are going to tell it. And I think that's such an important part of Kirby's history. And I think with a site like Kirby, which has so many layers and which has these very dramatic moments and also these quieter moments as it goes into ruination, that it's so important we tell these. I mean, one of the first questions is going to be, why does it look like this? What's happened here? And, you know, with Kirby, it's an interesting one because there's no one sort of huge dramatic event which really marked its decline. It's a gradual decline, which happens to a lot of houses, particularly as you go into that sort of 19th century period of a house that fell out of use. It passed through the generations and fell into neglect. And, you know, the owners, the Finch Hattons at the time, inherited other homes. So Kirby became a second, if not third home for them. It wasn't perhaps as practical or well suited to modern use as their other homes. They chose to rebuild a different house in Kent and just to sort of subtly modernise Kirby Mm. um, before it fell out of use. And then financial strain comes in as a factor as well. But also that's in many ways the beginning of that visiting journey, which our visitors are going to enjoy. You know, we had the great royals visiting at one point, but as Kirby falls into ruin, you get a whole different kind of visitor. Those who admire the architecture, those who made paintings or wrote wrote literature about it. And 
there's um, wonderful accounts. There's one by um, a Reverend Canon James in 1857 who describes the very action of decomposition going on, the crumbling stucco of the ceiling feeding the vampire ivy, the tattered tapestry yet hanging on the wall, the picture flapping in its broken frame. <laughs> so we're by no means the first people to evoke the imagination when we arrive at Kirby and we admire sort of the lost grandeur of days gone by. Yes, and I imagine the imaginations of people will be really opened by all the presentation that's going to take place when new visitors get to come and visit very soon. For all of you then, what are you most looking forward to about reopening the hall? I suppose in these troubled times of COVID-19, then just reopening is perhaps the single biggest event that you're looking forward to. But uh, what can you talk about? Uh, Dickon first. Not to echo your comments, but I think I think it is just that. It's been such a long time since visitors have been on site. And although we have been lucky to go to site because of, you know, we need to keep it going, it's not the same without visitors. It quickly becomes quite lonesome. And yes, just having visitors experience what we've created. Just having a bit of life and footsteps walking around in those echoey halls uh, exactly, and, and that sort exactly. of thing, I suppose. Yeah. Nadine, you must be quite pleased that all your hard work is finally going to come to fruition and people get to lay their eyes on everything that's been prepared. Indeed, yeah. I can't wait to see what the reaction is going to be, given that we're trying different things, new things, and we're hoping that some of these new ways of evoking the space will speak to new audiences and fire the imagination of people that perhaps don't normally visit homes like Kirby and also families and really looking forward to kind of inviting families back to explore this space with us. Megan, any final thoughts? Well, I'm looking forward to sleeping like a king, not only because we've worked really hard, but also (laughs) in that really cool new bed. I want to step into it and imagine what it would have been like to be royalty at Kirby back in the 17th century. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll be back to discover the story of Stonehenge Aerodrome on the 100th anniversary of its closure. Thanks for listening. See you next time.